We're in Mark chapter 7 still. Hopefully we will not be in it next week. Um, I want to begin by talking about the necessity of always keeping what I'm going to call just a comprehensive view of salvation history in our minds, not just when we're reading the Bible, but certainly that, and when we're studying the Bible. And if we don't have what I call a comprehensive view of salvation history, it somehow limits the awesomeness of what God really did in Christ. This past week, just coincidentally, I was talking to another pastor, and we were, it was on him talking, emailing, because uh, that's talking. And we were asking each other, so what are you preaching on now? What are you preaching on now? And he told me that he was preaching from Genesis, I don't know, chapter whatever. And then he mentioned, and I said, oh, that's great. You know, I'm always glad when I hear pastors preaching from the Old Testament. And he told me that it was the first time that he's preached out of the Old Testament in 21 years. And I was blown away because this guy is, he's a, he's a, this guy is an excellent preacher. He's an ex, exegetical expository preacher. He's a good guy, but that just blew me away. And as you're going to see this morning, or at least I hope, or as you're going to hear, having a comprehensive view of salvation history just makes, again, what God did even more awesome, and it makes it much more palpable, I think, and approachable to all of us. <clears throat> well, last week, and actually uh, the week before that, which was a long time, it wasn't literally the week, it was the last time I was here, Jesus has been engaging different groups of people. He engaged the Pharisees as a group, although they were mixed in with other people. He addresses the masses or the crowds that were there around the Pharisees. He addresses the disciples. And then occasionally he addresses even the individual. And each time Jesus does that, moving from the Pharisees to the masses, to the disciples, to the individuals, his choice of explanations and the words that he uses in explaining whatever it is he's explaining change depending on who he's talking to. So I guess not surprisingly, it's with the disciples that Jesus is the most focused on the particular lesson at hand. We're in Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 17. When Jesus had left the crowd and he entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. He said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? This isn't the first time we've heard that in this gospel. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and it's eliminated? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of getting a kick out of this explanation because this is, this is pretty earthy almost a little crass because Jesus is explaining all things digestive to the disciples because what spawned this whole thing was the Pharisees' criticism of them that they were sitting down to eat and, heaven forbid, they didn't wash their hands and so they viewed them as having defiled themselves. And so Jesus explains, look, it's not what goes into a man <clears throat> and then comes out and goes into his stomach because 
It's eliminated. So don't even worry about what you put into your mouth. And then parenthetically, you know, this is, this is, it's kind of not, it is somewhat in the context, but it's almost just like this isolated bonus nugget that the Spirit saw to put in this text because parenthetically, the text then adds, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, if you're a Jew, that's a big deal because part of the Jewish, what would be called the Jewish cultus, Judaism, ceremonial rituals of worship and all, they had all these dietary restrictions and regulations. You might remember in Acts chapter 10, there's an interesting confrontation of the God of heaven with Peter. And Peter has a vision and the Lord shows a sheet coming down from heaven with all the formerly unclean animals in it that the Jews were forbidden from eating. And God, the creator of the universe, says to Peter, Peter, you can now eat everything. And what's Peter say? Ha, oh, no way, Lord. <laughs> and God says a second time, Peter, you can eat everything now. Again, Peter, oh, I'm a faithful Jew. Far be it from me that I should put anything deviling into my mouth. And a third time, the creator of the universe says, Peter, eat. <laughs> we never did find out if Peter ate. <laughs> so Jesus gets through this crash course of all things digestive, and he focuses in on what the real crux of the matter is. Verse 20 to 23. Jesus was saying, it's that which proceeds out of the man. That is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And by the way, this isn't a comprehensive list. All these evil things proceed from within, and these are what defile the man. Now, the things which defile a person, that is, those things which make a person unholy to God, or let me make this a, hopefully a bit more down to earth, if not a tad crass, things that emanate from within our being, sort of the core of our soul, those are the things that still anger a holy God. It's not whether a person sits down to eat and doesn't wash his hands or what kind of a meat or what kind of meat the person has or has not eaten or whether the bread that he's eating is fluffy or flat. They're non-issues to the Lord. But they were so mindful of getting on the wrong side of God by violating those kinds of little legalisms, those kinds of laws, which again, in an Old Testament context, had great meaning and significance, which I'm going to touch on in a minute. The issue of defilement, actually I just like to think of it better as wickedness, isn't the superficial elements of rituals or the behaviors of what a person puts into their mouth, but rather it springs from what a person feeds their soul. Because that is going to dictate what flows out of the person. 
Barbara and I, and this isn't one of those sanctimonious, pseudo-pietistic statements, you know, running people, I don't have a television in my house. We have a television, okay? We live more on Netflix and the Golf Channel than anything else by far. And Joanna and what's his name? Chip. Gaines, right? Christian house renovator couples and everything else. Very wholesome. It's, it's really kind of cute if you're into that thing. But as we're watching like the American Pickers and uh, that sort of thing, lately there's been advertisements on, I think it's TLC, and one that was called, it said the Family Channel or something, and that's the one that got me in particular, the Family Channel, and it was about a new, new series coming up. And, of course, they show clips from the new series. And i got to tell you, I was not born under a rock, okay? Now, I became a Christian later in life. I grew up in the sexual revolution of the 60s, right? So, I mean, I'm not this, this oh, prude. The sound bites from these shows, which by the, the people that are in them, are geared to preteens and teens and young adults, are absolutely disgusting and appalling. I mean, they're vile. They're not couched even anymore in, in you know, uh, terms that we would read into and understand, you know, the double entendre. I mean, it's just right out there and it's filth. And I mention that because I know darn well that Christian parents are letting their children watch this stuff or they're watching it themselves. That does defile a person because I know in the 60s, you know, and in the 70s, I never listened to the words of the music that we listened to. All right, that's horse pucky. But you don't know what horse pucky is, you fertilize your yard with it or whatever. All right? You put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. And that's precisely what Jesus is talking about. While the emphasis in the particular context here happens to be on food, because again, remember the Pharisees raised the issue in that context, it goes well beyond quirky aspects of diet. Now, I'm, I'm just curious, and I would like to see a show of hands here, see if anybody remembers, because this goes back, I'm going to just, I have to guess, because I was writing for the Sentinel, and I ended up writing a column on these people. They were called the gray people of Farmington. Anybody? Anybody? Okay, just, yeah. Okay, I didn't expect you would. Well, and the Sentinel did a whole article on the gray people. Well, the gray people was a man and a woman, a husband and wife, who were part of some some Christ, Christian sect, all right, that kind of bore resemblance to the Amish, but they weren't Amish, bore resemblance to the Mennonite, but they weren't Mennonite. And the reason they were in the news was because, and the reason they were called the gray people was because the wife wore, you know, a dowdy, drab, gray dress that went from here to the floor, and no paint on the barn. Oh, never mind. And the husband wore a gray shirt and the gray pants and with, I think, maybe a, you know, a, gray, a gray hat. And what they would do is they would go out on the streets of Farmington daily 
and sit there in ever so glorious a witness and testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would stand there and they would dress down people for being sinners and for, you know, violating God and defiling yourselves by, you know, wearing jewelry and makeup and, and all this sort of stuff. Those were the gray people. And you see, my point of mentioning that is just as an illustration that the manifestation of Phariseeism was and is emphasis on all the wrong things, the superficial things, the external things, the things that don't matter to God while ignoring the things that do matter to God. Classic Phariseeism. Paul The Apostle Paul gets really cranked about this in various places in his letters. I'll mention only a couple. In his letter to the Colossians, he's really cranked about this because they were struggling with the matter of the liberating freedom, having a Savior who has fulfilled all those Old Testament Testament laws and rituals and, and, you know, legalisms and everything else that was upon them. And even though they'd been liberated by that, they were still struggling with that and they were subjecting themselves to those same kind of irrelevant things now. And this is what he writes, chapter 2 of the book of the Colossians, verse 20 and 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, let me paraphrase that. If you are a Christian, you have in Christ died to the culture of the world and to the beliefs of the world and the culture and the people around you. Well, why then, as if you were still living in that culture, in the world, why do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and the teaching of men. These are matters which have to be sure. The appearance of wisdom means it might look good to some people. It has the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence meaning you can do all those quirky things, which again the Pharisees were the masters of, and you can look the part and you can say all those things and you can sit there and be the ascetic and you can dress in all gray as supposedly, you know, a worship of God and everything else and completely, completely miss the real reason Jesus came, which was to fulfill all righteousness on your behalf and thus liberate you because no matter what we do, it will never measure up. It was a perennial issue and it is a perennial issue with God's people. Paul succinctly informs the Galatian believers in even stronger terms, writing in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness, in fact, comes through the law, that means if, if our standing with God, in fact, comes by our ability to live up to God's holiness standards, Old Testament, New Testament, and everything else, then Christ died needlessly. That's called blasphemy. You want to add to your salvation? Good luck with that. 
It's not the external facade of religiosity that is of any benefit to anyone. Adolf Hitler, by the way, was notoriously religious. That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. And along these same lines, we go to the gospel writer Matthew in chapter 12, 34 of his gospel. Matthew records Jesus saying something that really, really always gets me when I read it. It's very sobering because it's, well, you'll see. Matthew writes, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Uh, (laughs) Really, Lord? And boy, this is really fresh. As I mentioned last week, I had some rough weeks in the immediate past. And I had discussions with God. And fortunately, he viewed me the whole time through Christ, the perfect one. Because if he didn't, Barb would have come down to just a charred silhouette on the floor. (laughs) This is why the Bible gives special attention to the tongue. James chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. No one can tame the tongue. (laughs) It's a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. And here, I mean, this, I relate so well to this, unfortunately. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. And James says, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. <laughs> really? Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? No. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? No. Nor can salt water produce fresh. The point is that we are supposed to note the glaring contradiction between what we say we believe and what we truly believe. Because we will live what we truly believe. So many times... I don't even want to lift my eyes up to the heavens for the shame of what just came out of my mouth. And honestly, that is, was a big factor in when I finally, and this goes back years now, why I finally turned off Fox News and every other news thread and news thing that would come across. Tell me you don't talk to your TV. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm. <clears throat> One minute my mouth is praying to the Lord and next minute it is spewing like an overflowing septic tank. There was one I don't remember if it was a morning, an afternoon or a night cuz last couple of months just kind of all blended into the same thing. But I was done with one of my rants and feeling appropriately guilty. And I did look up to the heavens. And I said, Lord, but for the cross of Jesus. Oh, the wonderful cross 
we sing it, Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Oh, the wonderful cross, the wonderful cross, all who gather here by grace draw near and bless your name. Mark, now in classic Mark fashion, abruptly leaves and he moves to yet another vignette. Totally new scene. Mark 7, verse 24. Jesus got up and he went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, and yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I don't know how the first time or the tenth time or the fiftieth time, perhaps, you react when you have read that. I remember the very first time I read that, and I went, okay, I misunderstood that one. Let me read that one again. It was Jesus. Yeah, it was Jesus doing the talking. And I remember scratching my head. And every time I would read that for years, I just kind of scratched my head. Well, we grow, hopefully, in the faith and in learning and in understanding. So let's deal with this. Let's be mindful of the juxtapositioning of this passage. That means where this passage is located in relation to other vignettes that Mark gives us. So let's be mindful of that to what immediately proceeds what we're now talking about. Namely, the disciples didn't wash off, going back back to last week, the Gentile cooties that the Pharisees believed they had on them before they were eating. Now, on first blush, This little interchange, as I mentioned, is both perplexing and it has always been disconcerting to me. As a woman in desperate need, she comes humbly to the Savior of mankind. To the Savior of mankind. Of mankind not just the Jews. And she pleads with Jesus to get rid of the demon that's afflicting her daughter. And as I said, Jesus' reply is downright shocking. And he says to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. (laughs) Gospel writer Matthew records in chapter 15 the same event, but he gives just a little more detail that I think even accentuates the awkwardness of the story. A Canaanite woman from that region, let me get you the reference on there, Matthew 15, 22 to 28. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord. This is the same story Mark just told. Son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. 
And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. And he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Basically, again on first blush, seems like Jesus is justifying of what is undeniably a harsh and even insulting response. Story continues. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Not the reaction that I would expect of a desperate woman whose child was ill and was just called a dog by the one she came to for help. Jesus said to her, the passage ends in Matthew, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Okay, what is going on and what are the disciples supposed to hear if they have ears to hear? Some thoughts. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Just be Captain Obvious. And yet in God's economy, he always intended for Jesus to be the Savior of mankind. So we need to remember this, and we need to remember that we are in what theologians sometimes call a salvation historical time warp. Let me explain that. Meaning that where we are in the scriptures and in the unfolding of God's plan of salvation, which runs from Genesis to Revelation, we are right smack in the transitional period where everything that was intended in the Old Testament system of theology and ritual worship is in the process. It's in the process of being fulfilled. Because remember, Jesus did not say, it is finished until Calvary. And we're not there yet. So this is what caused so much angst with the Jewish leaders of the day. Because for as far as they could tell, Jesus was upending the entire Old Testament system of worship. When what Jesus was doing was simply completing what God indeed had begun all the way back in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, goes way back into Genesis and extracts a passage there concerning Abraham. This is what he writes. For the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, meaning it was not through the Old Testament system of ritual and worship, but through the righteousness of faith. We're talking about the message of salvation by faith here in Genesis with Abraham, patriarch. For if those who are of the law are heirs, referring to the Jews, 
then faith is made void. And the promise is nullified. Why? Because the law can only ever bring about wrath. Why? Because no human being can fulfill the law perfectly as a holy God demands. But where there is no law, there is no violation. For this reason, the text says, it's not by jumping through all the religious hoops. Old Testament, New Testament, it is by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, listen to the wording carefully here, not only to those who are of the law, meaning to the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Well, wait a minute, Abraham was a Jew. Yeah, but Jesus extracts him, or Paul extracts him here to hold out Abraham as the Jewish part of him is basically irrelevant in that sense. Because to them, being Jewish meant obeying the laws of ritual ceremonies and all of that. But Abraham was never declared righteous or justified by that. He was declared it by faith. Who is the father of us all. Of us all. Jew, Gentile, alike. I'm going to be giving a better explanation of this Easter morning. Well, this is why in the opening chapter of Romans, Paul comes right out of the gate writing this in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, it's true, Old Testament, but also to the Greek, which means to Gentiles, to everybody who is not a Jew. It was only ever in God's mind to be the salvation. Of mankind. All right, so the vignette with the Syrophoenician woman is a brilliant intrusion into the preconceived idea of the Pharisees and of the disciples to bluntly underscore that Jesus came to be the Savior of the Jews as well as the cootie ridden Gentiles. So, what seems like a harsh response by Jesus is actually a powerful statement about the theological fulfillment that is in process and what better way to make it than to play into that Old Testament understanding, meaning salvations to the Jews only, and then rip the theological rug right out from under them, offering the grace of the Jewish Messiah to this Gentile woman as well. It's brilliant. Go figure. And just that quick, Mark ends that vignette, telling us in going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Hopefully, lesson learned. Oh boy. No, can't do it. Good place to end. What I hope, and, and again, what, you know, the rest of the message here, which I'll get on next week, just again so profoundly underscores, one, the importance of 
the word of God in its entirety, not just the New Testament. How somebody could ignore what is basically two-thirds of the Bible for the overwhelming majority of their pastoral ministry, their preaching ministry, just, I, I don't get it. And it really, again, it not only disadvantages us, but it breeds all kinds of misunderstanding. And honestly, you cannot, I cannot fathom how you can explain Jesus' response to the Syrophoenician women apart from taking that comprehensive view of salvation history and seeing that Jesus was basically playing the disciples like a fiddle. Yeah, yeah, God, man, for the Jews, your salvation's for us. And Jesus goes, uh-huh, you ready? And you see their feet going up in the air and boof. Now, remember that guy named Abraham? Yeah, the father of faith the father of faith. Not performance, not legalism, not ritual, not worship. The father of faith. And the father of all who likewise believe. You know, and maybe it's because I've been out a few weeks, you know, or whatever, but this book just boggles my mind. It thrills me. It really does. And hopefully your minds are being expanded, but not just for the sake of intellectualism. Okay, God forbid that we just come in here every Sunday and we we eat more and more information. And then we go out and there's no change. That which proceeds out of us is the same old nastiness and crud that it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Are you a follower of Jesus today? Not an enthusiast. I'm a Jesus enthusiast. But a follower to whereby with integrity you can declare he is Lord of my life. And assure you, the one who just said that to you is keenly mindful of the fact that doesn't mean Oh, I'm just so in step with Jesus 24-7. He is Lord of my life all the time, every way. If you could just peer into my life here and there, the various times you just see me praising Jesus. <laughs> yeah. No. Are you going to be in second service? I might change my story, second service. If Anyway. Let me have Ronnie Dunbar come on down. I understand you're praying for us this morning. Were you aware of that? Oh, you, oh yeah, the technology today. Okay. All right, let, us have, let me have you stand.